He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to, to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and re rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The second reading is from Matthew 8, verses 1 to 16. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, 
A centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Thank you, Sue and Tony. What we've just heard read is really so helpful. Jesus has just finished preaching perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the sermon that Gandhi, the Hindu leader, said was the greatest ethical teaching ever given. And Jesus comes down from the heights of that mountaintop experience and he confronts this world in a mess. And we've just heard a few examples of that. My hope today is that we would better understand from what's been read why each of us personally needs Jesus and why, well, we wouldn't want anyone else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please show us Christ and help us to understand his relevance for each of us. Amen. Well, it seems to me as I reflect on the year that's been that our world is in a hopeless mess and that mess is closer than each of us would like to think, even though we might pretend otherwise. And Mad, think back to New Year's Eve, last New Year's Eve. Who would have thought then that this year would have been what it's been? It began with those terrifying bushfires, didn't it, in Australia? Um, one third of Kangaroo Island snuffed out in a day. And then, of course, COVID. And this is the world we live in, which we think will never touch us, and we do our best to insulate ourselves. My own story of how I came to faith in Christ um, began, of course, when I was 10 years old. I, I grew up in a quiet cul-de-sac in Sydney where nothing ever went wrong until the day the neighbor axe murdered his wife, had a heart attack on the front lawn. Not long after that, the next door neighbor was kidnapped. 
Not long after that, the lady two doors down blew her brains out in Hyde Park. And not long after that, um, a bikey went on an assassination job to the wrong house and blew the husband of my year six teacher away through the fly screen door. And this was in a suburb where nothing ever was meant to go wrong. I knew the world was messy, but I had pretended that it wasn't messy, and yet it was, and the mess was closer to me than I uh, could pretend until I couldn't pretend any longer. Sooner or later, all of us have to confront this. So after I moved to Adelaide from Wollongong, every Monday morning I would ring up a lady named Kaz who I'd met at my previous church in Wollongong. She'd come under sufferance, really, <laughs> to church one night. I was speaking. We, we clicked and we formed something of a friendship. In her time, Kaz had been a high-powered female lawyer, something of an Erin Brockovich in Australia, and she took on you know, powerful corporations on behalf of little people. When I knew her, she was crippled with cancer. She had multiple lesions and tumours throughout her brain, in her um, spine, in her organs. She was under so much pain that when she would shift in bed, her bones would sometimes splinter. And at her lowest, she weighed 24 kilos. Not long after I moved here, Kaz went blind. And I would ring her because I'd try and talk to her about Jesus and give her hope. In the end, what she was looking for was not an answer to the question, why, why me? What she was looking for was a solution. She wanted a solution, not death. She wanted someone to fix up the mess of suffering she was in, right? Now, her longing is not a new one. 700 years before Jesus, God promises a solution to his people through the prophet Isaiah, and we've just read some of it that God was going to send someone who would fix up the mess, who would be a servant, who in chapter 35 of Isaiah, we read 53, but earlier, he would bind up the brokenhearted, he would free the captive, he would heal the lepers, he would restore sight to the blind, he would make the lame walk, he would make the deaf hear. And every Monday I rang Kaz to remind her that that good news, that promise had come true, that God had sent someone uh, to deal with the mess of our world, um, the mess not just in our body, but in the mess of a, sort of a, a relationship with him that's been severed. Well, in Matthew 8, in the brief passage we've read, both of those issues are addressed, and Jesus meets both of those needs, the physical ones and the relationship with God ones. And so Jesus comes down the mountain and he comes to the vast crowds following him, numbering somewhere in the tens of thousands. And straight away, of course, coming down to that multitude, Jesus is confronted by people in need. And in four different episodes, he sees the mess of people's lives on the ground. And straight away, Jesus confronts that mess. It's not the mess that confronts Jesus. Jesus confronts that mess. And as he does so, God wants us to see two things about Jesus because they keep getting replayed. It's very simple. And it's this. First of all, is his astounding authority. And secondly, how he uses it. He uses it to rescue people from the mess of the world. So two things, what Jesus has, authority from God, and what he does 
He saves us from our mess. So the first thing to see is his astounding authority. At the end of chapter 7, Matthew wrote that when Jesus finished speaking the sermon, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Maybe that's why Gandhi couldn't help but be impressed. Jesus spoke with divine authority. And having just taught with the authority of God, now in these episodes, Jesus displays that same sort of authority which comes from God. In the first He confronts this man who's been devastated through leprosy. The man kneels before Jesus. Of course, we heard in the kids' talk, it's hard to think of anything more worse to happen to a person than to have leprosy and be in the first century because to be a leper was to be cursed by God, which meant not only were you ostracized by people and from every human contact, but you were excluded from going to the temple, which means you were ostracized from God. You were cursed, and you had no hope for either situation to be changed. To be a leper was to be better off dead. And then Jesus comes, and now this man falls down before him, which tells us, In his mind, if God is with Jesus, he's heard news, he would have heard news of the miracles. If God had visited his people once again, now there's hope. And he kneels before Jesus, which actually is the position of worship, something appropriate to do before God. So this leper is kneeling, perhaps more appropriately than he realizes at the time, and he's saying, well, what would you say? Lord, if you can make me clean. No, his words are different. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability. He doesn't say if you can. But of course, you read the Old Testament, leprosy has only ever been cured twice before, both times by God himself, in the case of Miriam, Moses' sister, and Naaman the Syrian, who dunks himself in the Jordan seven times in the time of Elijah the prophet. We see this man believing that in Jesus is the authority of God himself. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus says, of course I'm willing. Be clean. And immediately, just like that, the leper is cured of his leprosy. This is astounding authority over leprosy. Okay, next in verse 5, Jesus enters the Roman garrison city of Capernaum. And he meets a man well acquainted with authority, a Roman centurion. And he comes to Jesus with a plea for help. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed in terrible suffering. Obviously, the man's critically unwell. He's in a lot of pain. On the face of it, the centurion's words are a plea for Jesus to come to his house to heal the servant. But then something unexpected happens. The centurion stops him and he says, Lord, I don't, I don't deserve you to come under my roof. What's he saying? He's saying, well, I know my place. And even though I'm an important person, a centurion, and I've got a hundred Roman soldiers under me, you are much more important than me. So he stops him. And we think, well, what's the man thinking? He has to come to his house to heal his servant, right? Well, wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Because being a centurion, this man understands how authority works. 
He explains, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. In the Roman army, authority is delegated down the line of command from Caesar to legate, legate to tri tribune to centurion. So an order by a centurion to his soldier comes with the authority of the emperor. And if the soldier disobeys the command of the centurion, he disobeys the emperor and there are the consequences. That's how authority works and the centurion knows it. He says, I tell that man go and that man goes and I tell that man come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, he does it. He knows the power of a word given when behind that word is authority. And so he understands from Jesus, who is more powerful than he, he says only a word is needed. Just say the word, my servant will be healed. Or Jesus says, well, go. It will be done as you believed it would. And he is healed at that very hour. So the same authority which made the universe through a spoken word now, now fuses damaged nerves, perhaps in a spine, and the servant is healed. His authority is astounding. Then there's the third episode. Verse 14, Jesus enters Peter's house. He sees Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. This is more, more familiar to us, right? If you're a parent, you know how frightening it is to have a child with a raging temperature that goes unchecked. So a fever's dangerous, but it's rarely life-threatening. But in the ancient world, it was one of the biggest killers. Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world, who survived innumerable battles. What took him in the end was not an ax or a sword or a spear, it was a fever. Without antibiotics or paracetamol, if you were in bed, you were down for the count. So Peter's mother-in-law is not needing just a day in bed, she's in the jaws of death, and again with his authority over sickness, Jesus touches her hand, the fever leaves her, she gets up and she begins to wait on him. This is astounding authority over sickness and death. And then there's the final episode, verse 16. The sun goes down, but the heat intensifies because now many who are demon-possessed or sick are being brought to Jesus. Now, we know what it is to be sick, but I would want to suggest that actually being demon-possessed is not so far from our imagination. Most of us can remember a moment when we were struck with an uncontrollable outburst, a rage, for example. Rage that's unchecked, uncontrolled is terrifying. It can terrify us because we think, oh my goodness, um, it seems like someone else has possession of me. You know, we all do have a dark side. It's just domesticated most of the time. Well, Jesus is confronted with the demon-possessed and the sick, and he confronts them, and always in control, he just heals them with a word. Astounding authority that he exerts over the mess of the world. He comes with the authority of God himself. Now, uh, this is the reason why you and I need him. He is the saviour we need because he comes with this authority, and when we think for a moment, he's the saviour we'd want. If you could entrust a person with all the authority and power of God himself, who would you choose? Um, we all want our leaders to do something to fix up the mess the world is in. 
Well, let me ask you, is there any politician who you would willingly entrust with this sort of astounding authority? <laughs> Can you name one <laughs> that you could trust? Any world leader, any, any religious leader, any Hollywood entertainer? Um, years ago, Jim Carrey was interviewed uh, when he just made the movie Bruce Almighty, when he plays God with the power of God. And in the interview, the interviewer said, would you like to be God, really? And Jim Carrey just laughed and he said, are you kidding? And then he became serious and he said, I couldn't handle the responsibility. Well, is there anyone you think who could handle the power and the responsibility? I mean, it's hard, isn't it, to think of anyone who'd be competent enough and selfless enough not to abuse that power, not to mess it up or not to serve themselves. Okay, Jesus has this power. Please notice what he does with the power and authority of God. He uses it not to serve himself, but to serve other people. He uses it to set people free from what is broken in their lives. In the case of the leper, it had been years since he had felt the touch of another human being because anyone who touched him would become defiled and unclean. Well, the astounding thing is when Jesus touches him, and he could have just healed him with a word, couldn't he? But he didn't. He chose to touch him, and that's significant. When Jesus touched him, the defilement didn't go from the leper to Jesus. Jesus' holiness, his wellness, went that way towards the leper. Which means, at this, if you think about it, at the time that Jesus touched him, the man who is God touches the leper, Suddenly, this man's problems are solved because his relationship with people are restored. Someone touches him, and his relationship with God is restored. God, in compassion, touches him. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus uses his authority to restore what's broken and to restore people to relationship with God. That is why you'd want him as your saviour. But of course, so we'd want him to save us because how selflessly he takes on our burdens himself. In the last verse of our passage, verse 17, Matthew helps us make sense of these miracles by saying, these were to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Matthew's point is that these miracles of restoration that Jesus did weren't just for the sake of the people that he cured on that day. They are signs which point to what Jesus has done for you and for me. Signs of how we might be restored through him. Because by quoting from Isaiah, Matthew is making the point that in healing others, Jesus somehow took upon himself our weaknesses. He carried our diseases that in touching the leper, it wasn't just Jesus' cleanness which flowed to the leper, but the transaction went the other way. Jesus took on the man's defilement and uncleanness. How? Well, the wider chapter from Isaiah explains. This chapter describes 700 years, it's written there, 700 years before the moment when 
the coming of the promised servant of God deliberately gives himself up to slaughter and death, not only to deal with our weaknesses and diseases, but much more importantly, to deal with that which defiles us, makes us unclean in the sight of God, our sin. It's our sin that's the problem. You know, in the Bible, we read it and we discover all sickness and death ultimately occur because each one of us independently, we've all done it, we've all said no to the God of the universe. And in declaring independence from our creator, we pay the penalty in a creation handed over to punishment and curse. God's word from Isaiah picks up on this and explains when Jesus died, he took upon himself all our sin and all its consequences, including disease and sickness. And rather than us having to bear it, he bore it in his body. He traded places. Isaiah says, though he was innocent, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Because we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord laid upon Jesus the sin of us all. And it happened when Jesus died at the cross. In my own life, when I understood the swap that Jesus made for me, I understood I had no choice but to accept what Jesus had done for me. Well, what about you? The choice is to accept Jesus' death for you and that he paid for your sins on the cross or to reject that and choose to pay for your sin yourself. It is your own choice, but when it's put like that, there really is no choice, is there? In verse 11, which I skipped over, Jesus describes what awaits those who, like the centurion, trust Jesus as God. Jesus says, many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Heaven will be a rich experience for those who trust in Jesus. But for those who say, no, 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 thank you, for those who choose to pay for their own sins. Jesus says that choice is hellish. Verse 12, such people will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are Jesus' words, not mine. The choice is whether you trust in him or not. That is a choice about who you will accept to pay for your sins, Jesus or yourself. If you, it's hell. If you choose Jesus, the choice is heavenly. And in the end, therefore, it's really not a difficult decision. We have to trust in Christ because he's died for us. Now, before I ask us to actually make that response, and I'm going to give us a chance to do it, some people will be ready to do that. I want to read a modern parable which helps us see the importance of what Jesus did. So just lose yourself in this for a moment. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes both bright and new. 
and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, rags, ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, new rags for old, I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought for myself, for the man stood six feet, foot, six feet four, his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him, my curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook, her heart was breaking. The rag man stopped his cart. Quietly he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead, dead toys, pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. And then as, she, as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stand, stained handkerchief to his own face and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking. And yet she was left without a tear. Well, this is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely yellow, yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers. And I gasped at what I saw. For with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work, asked a man, he asked a man who leaned against a tele telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing his right sleeve of his jacket flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So said the ragman, give me your jacket. I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket. And so did the ragman. And I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. 
After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick. Yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skidded through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow. And yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And then I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill, and with tormented labour, he cleared a little space on that hill, and then he sighed, and he laid down, and he, he pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket and covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car, and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died, and I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know how could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and its night too, but then on Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violence, light, pure, hard, Demanding light slammed against my sour face and I blinked and I looked and I saw the last and the first wonder of all. There was the ragman, folding his blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow nor of age and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I walked up to the ragman, and I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. And then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with a clear yearning in my voice, dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him, the ragman, the ragman, the Christ. It's only a parable, but it helps, I think, to see what Jesus did. He took on our condition to save us. It helps us see why there's no one else more worthy of our trust than Christ. Now, some of you, it's the right time to take that step of putting your trust in Christ. Some of you will want to, but you'll have questions, that's okay. Some of you will have already made that step and you won't mind doing it again. I'm going to say a prayer or have us say a prayer on the screen, thank you. And um, perhaps I'll get us all to say, but don't say it if you don't want to. Um, but we'll say it, and particularly if this is the first time you're saying this, this is significant. But let's help one another and say this together. 
Dear God, I've realized that I need Jesus Christ in my life. I'm so sorry for having shut him out. It's time I stopped doing that. I want now to invite Christ into my life. I want to be clean of my sin. I want him to come and to take charge. I want to experience his saving kindnesses in my life. Thank you so much that Jesus did a swap for me on the cross. Thank you that Jesus served me by suffering in my place. Thank you that Jesus is the solution to what is wrong with this world. I trust in him. Help me to live a new life from this day on with Jesus as my king and my savior. Amen. Can I say that if you prayed this prayer, I know, I know because this is what God wants, that he heard you and that though you may not feel differently, what Jesus won for you on the cross has been applied to you. And that means that you and he are in a different standing. You are his forgiven child. If that is you, then you will need help in working out how to take the next step. And my suggestion, my strong encouragement is that you tell someone you've done that. Um, tell me if you've got no one else to tell, or Mark, or Cam, uh, or someone safe, perhaps, who you know here. Um, but thank you for listening.